Kids, kindergarten through fifth grade, would you make your way to the back? Your teachers are back there waiting for you. We'll happily take you to your classroom this morning. If you take your Bible with me and turn to Genesis chapter 3, we've been in the book of Genesis now for several weeks since the beginning of the year, and we're going to continue our time there this morning. And we're going to look specifically this morning at one, at one verse, verse 16 in Genesis chapter 3. Now you remember last week we spent time processing through verses 14 and 15 as God addresses the serpent in, in Genesis 3. 14 and 15, he addresses the serpent first, and then he addresses the, in the verse that we're going to look at this morning, the woman, and then Adam, uh, the man, next week is where we'll spend our time. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's still maybe one or two back there, feel free to pick it up and grab it um, and have it in front of you this morning. Genesis three sixteen. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Again, in Genesis 3, so far we've seen sin enter into the world. At the beginning of the chapter, the serpent comes to Eve and deceives her into eating of the fruit, and then she hands the fruit to her husband who willfully disobeys and who takes the fruit and eats. And so God curses the serpent. That's what we saw last week. And within that curse, God graciously enacts a covenant, which we saw in verse 15. Embedded here in verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this is a, an allusion to what is about to come, albeit a few millennia later. God was planning to send Jesus Christ into the world to put an end to the, the sin and ultimately the death that Adam and Eve's rebellion had brought upon them. And this covenant does not rely on human will or performance. We don't see any conditions here given, but on God's grace according to his plan. And it's a future reality, but now we see clearly in our text, in the text that we'll look at next week, 17 through 19, that sin does in fact have ramifications. Sin does in fact have Consequences, the eating of the fruit that God said not to eat of, that disobedience, that act of willful rebellion brings about, brings about a curse. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, a curse comes upon them, a curse that will extend to their children and to their children's children and to their children's children's children and so on all the way to us and it will extend to our children and our children's children. This is curses God's just punishment for sin. And this is what we'll focus our time on this week and, and next. So for the next two weeks, I have a very specific understanding or a specific goal for our time together. Because of this text, this text is not an easy text. 
It's a difficult one, especially because of our situation in culture, because of where we are in 2020. This text is, is radically, radically difficult. In fact, I want to suggest to you this morning that our culture actually embraces the curse rather than, rather than sees it as a curse. And we'll get there in our time. But for the next two weeks, again, 16 through 19, I want you to see clearly, this is the goal for our time, is that my aim is to demonstrate through these four verses that much of the cultural confusion that we experience as it relates to man and woman in particular finds its grounding right here in the afterfacts, the introduction of sin into the world. I'm going to say that again because that was a mouthful. My aim is to demonstrate through Genesis 3, 16 through 19, that much of the cultural confusion we experience finds its grounding right here in the after effects of the introduction of the sin into the world. So sin introduced into the world in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Then we have God confronting man and woman in 8 through 13. And then the curse and the subsequent or embedded covenant given to God's to, to God's people in verses 14 and 15, and then the results or the after effects of the, the sin entering the world, or the introduction of sin into the world here in 16 through 19. So that's our setup. And getting to the heart of this verse in particular, and some of the verses next week as well, or at least portions of the verses next week as well, are going to be, when applied to our lives, cause a little bit of uncomfortability. They're going to cause a little bit of uncomfortability. So my hope is the clear meaning of this text will be applied to your life, to my life, and it will cause us to explore how we're living and how we've structured our lives specifically as men and women. And so the things that are contained in this verse, again, are challenged culturally and become cultural norms and have seeped into the church And on the flip side, though, we need to explore God's reason for what takes place here. Oftentimes, the church makes arguments about men and women and their roles together from tradition or experience. But rather than do that, we want to seek to understand very specifically what God communicates to us through his word. So we're going to go back and we're going to find a lot of anchor points for us in Genesis chapter 2 when God's design is, is, is communicated. So we want to seek to understand what God communicates through his word about man and woman. But sometimes Christians are culturally reactionary and we start to yell about how things used to be. But that's not always helpful, especially in the the cultural conversation. And it often misrepresents God to the world around us. So what I'm going to say and where I'm going to begin is by saying this. that, That these verses... 16 through 19 in particular, and 16 today that we're going to look at specifically, don't show us an angry father red in the face dishing out punishment. Something like no TV for a week or you can't have friends over this weekend or you're grounded for a month, that type of of punishment. That's not what's going on here. Rather, again, they represent, the words here represent just punishment for sin committed, interwoven with God's kindness. That we see in verse 15. There is another coming who will endure the ultimate effects on behalf of his people. 
There's another coming who will endure the ultimate effects on behalf of his people. Sin taken upon Jesus Christ on the cross, death defeated in his, in his resurrection. So here, in verse 16, we have God speaking to the woman directly. Now I want you to see here that in this text, there is an addressing of the woman according to what God charges her with in chapters 1 and 2. If you flip back to Genesis chapter 1, just for a moment, you'll see in verse 28, God says, or it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is a charge given to both man and woman, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and then have dominion over every living creature given to both man and woman. And then in, verse, in chapter 2, specifically in verse 18, God makes this pronouncement. He says, then the Lord God said, it, sh- it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God carves out this space for woman. He carves out this space for woman as the one who will assist, assist her husband in the keeping of the garden that we see in verse 15 and the working of the garden that we see in verse 15. And so the punishment that God then gives to the woman in verse 16, when he says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing and your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He's going after the two things which define her role most specifically. First is childbearing and and marriage. Now we're going to talk about the cultural implications of that in the past because sometimes that becomes like a dirty, dirty type of concept for us that we say like, oh, the Bible's reducing women to that. Absolutely not. That's not what's happening here. These are the designed roles, though, that God has given to Eve in the place where she's going to feel the effects of sin most, most clearly. So, two things. We'll start with childbearing and think about that because that's what God says first here. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now God just again finished saying that the serpent's head would be crushed by the heel of the offspring of the woman. And I wonder, as God was addressing the serpent, if if Eve's thought, and maybe Adam's as well, was, I passed the buck down to the serpent in verse 13. And God has clearly cursed him. And he's going to die. And all I need to do is have a baby. Now, I understand that that's a small, not a small thing. I wonder if she thought, maybe I'm off the hook here. I passed the buck down. But then God turns to Eve in verse 16 and he addresses her. Now, again, we're thinking about the childbearing piece that God talks about. But consider all of what God says in verse 16 before we, we go on. Again, the two roles, the two things that the penalty of sin affects are the primary roles given to the woman. God's command to the man and the woman in Genesis 1.28, again, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and to subdue it. The woman plays a key role in the reproductive process, a dramatic understatement, I get that. But God also creates the woman, again, to assist her husband keeping the garden 
and the penalty given affects these two things. I want to make sure that we're clear on that. Again, God says to the woman, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Again, let's think about that specifically for a moment because I think that we look at this and we wonder, so the pain of having a baby got tougher and it's multiplied, in fact. But I want to propose that this statement that God makes, the punishment, the curse that comes as an after effect to the introduction of sin into the world, it extends farther than just getting or having a baby got a little tougher. And to be clear, what God says to Eve extends to every woman who ever walks on the face of the earth. So within the past nine days, my sister and my sister-in-law both have had had babies, and they both experienced what a very real pain in the labor and delivery process, and even beyond that. And but it doesn't end there, and for some women, it doesn't even begin there. So let me give you a handful of ways, just thinking about this verse, that the curse of sin is in play as it pertains to to childbearing. Let me give you. I think I'm going to give you like five, six, five. We could probably do more. Let's stick with five. The first way is labor and delivery. Again, a ton of women experience a ton of pain when birthing time comes. And this is no surprise. No surprise. I've been at my wife's side for the birth of five children. um, And I can confirm it looks really painful even with modern medicine. I have no ability to actually attest to how painful it is. And so I won't say anything further. But labor and delivery is hard. And pain is experienced there. But again, that's kind of where we think or begin to think when we read this, and then we kind of just leave it there. But I want to, again, move to some other ideas here. Um, The simple idea of pregnancy. Number two, the simple idea of pregnancy. Pregnancy is extremely taxing, carrying extra weight, hormones in flux. There's often anxiety that comes along with it. There's a threat of very unique and specific health problems that come during pregnancy. Carrying another human who also needs to eat for about 40 weeks while that other human grows at an exponential rate, that sounds exhausting. And some pregnancies are easier than others, but no one would ever put the process of carrying a child in the category of easy. In 2016, the World Health Organization estimated that 830 women per day die because of complications during pregnancy and childbirth. A a BBC article written that same year, Jonathan Wells, he's a childhood nutritionist at the University College in London, says, it's extremely rare for a mammalian mother to pay such a high price for offspring production. That's a very fancy way of saying human women pay a high price. And the type of toll that pregnancy and childbirth has a woman is not universal across the animal kingdom. And that seems to be some significant support for the Genesis account. But the BBC article was entitled, quote, The Real Reason Why Childbirth is So Painful and Dangerous. That's a clickbaity title. But the article gives a lot of evolutionary and humanistic perspectives. But again, a brief reading of Genesis 3.16 provides plenty of reasoning for the pain that women experience during childbirth, pregnancy, those two things. 
So the, the curse of sin, as it pertains to childbearing, affects both the labor and delivery process and the pregnancy leading up to it. But here are some that maybe we not think about as often. Infertility. The pain of childbearing includes the pain that comes along with not bearing children for some. This is part of God's God, or woman's God-given designed role. And because of sin, the pain may come in the form of being unable to fulfill that God-given role. Scripture describes the difficulty of barrenness or infertility. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren until she was well past her childbearing years. When it is promised her that she will have a son, she laughs at the absurdity of it. And I wonder if she laughs because she thinks, I'm, I'm really old and I'm past that stage of my life, but it still represents a coping method for dealing with the pain that she wrestled with for decades. And in ancient times, and in some not-so-ancient times, people have thought that infertility was punishment for personal sin or the sin of a parent. The Bible does not affirm this notion. If you struggled with infertility, you are not being punished for your sin or punished for your parents' sin. You are living in a fallen world that resonates at the frequency of the consequences from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And now, modern medicine can oftentimes help with infertility, but Christians must weigh the ethical, ethical implications of particular fertility treatments. That's a conversation for another time, but such, some such treatments are a grace from God and can be considered as viable options. But Scripture is clear. God is the one who opens the womb and the one who closes the womb. And again, these are the implications of a world that resonates at the frequency of, of the sin and the consequences of that sin of our first parents. So, one, pregnancy... Two, labor and delivery. Three, infertility. Four, miscarriage and infant mortality. Death may threaten the woman, but it also threatens children in and outside of the womb. An estimated 10 to 15% of pregnancies end in miscarriage, usually early in the pregnancy. Infant mortality rates have dropped significantly as a result of modern medicine. But this has not been the case for the majority of human history. According to the CDC, as few as 100 years ago, nearly 10 out of 100 live births resulted in death in infancy. And this is another place where some have suggested that the sin of the individual may contribute to the death of a child. But again, this is an unbiblical notion. Death is a part of a fallen world, but we should not imply that someone's sin has contributed to the death of a child in the womb or in infancy. The physical and the emotional toll that losing a child in the womb or in infancy should not be underestimated. Number five, mothering, being a mom. Being a mom is hard. It's not hyperbole to suggest that it's radically difficult. Raising children is hard. They are rebellious. They make decisions that grieve their mother's hearts. They say hurtful things. They ultimately break away and start their own families and make a life for themselves. 
from conception to adulthood, being a mom is an equipping children for the moment that you will say goodbye. That is a difficult and painful task. Genesis 2.24a, the first part of that verse, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. I think that there's a lot more that we could say here, but I don't want to take like six weeks on just this one verse. So you get the idea. The curse of sin for the woman extends further than just the birthing process. Bearing and rearing children would be laden with pain. Eve would have kids. Her pain would be multiplied in the pregnancy and the childbearing. And the emotional and physical pain would be immense as her firstborn son would raise up and kill her second. And the results of her sin would be transmitted to every woman to live in similar experiences. So that's the first element that we see here. The second punishment Eve experiences for her sin has to do with her marriage. Look at the second half of 16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I said earlier that God created the woman to assist her husband in working and keeping the garden. And as a result of her sin, God says to Eve, your desire will be contrary to your husband's, but he will rule over you. Now that's an interesting phrase and sometimes we're not quite sure what we should do with it. But where Eve has been once happy in her role by succumbing to the serpent's deception, she was now guilty of upsetting God's created order. And the phrase that God speaks may seem a bit difficult to understand. So let's just talk about it for a second. When God says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, he means that woman will desire to live differently than what God has established in his order in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He means that the woman will desire to live in a way that will upset or ultimately work to upset that order. God established the husband as the head of his wife. Paul is clear about this in in 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians chapter 5 and in several other places as well. This means that a man is to lead his wife. He is to protect her. He is to provide for her. But a desire that is contrary to her husband is one that seeks independence from that and seeks to control the relationship and be be her own head. But this desire that she has and even pursues will not offer the satisfaction that she longs for. That is the meaning of, but he shall rule over you. That's not intended to be a domineering statement. And it's not one that isn't subject to sin. But it is God expressing that it will be her husband's role to lead, provide, and to protect his wife. Now, this is where it becomes culturally sticky. It becomes difficult here culturally. culturally. Our culture is largely one that is egalitarian. And what that means is that our culture thinks that distinct roles of men and men, men and women should be rejected. We've talked about this in the past, about how we are consider ourselves complementarian. Men and women are created in, equally in God's image, to, but have different roles to complement one another. Not like, hey, you look great today, but complement with an E instead of an I in there. You know what I mean? 
Unfortunately, culture has attacked this idea and said that men and women simply cannot be equal unless they are given exactly the same set of opportunities. It's a simple non sequitur, logical fallacy. A non sequitur is a conclusion or statement that does not logically follow from the previous argument or statement. An example of an extreme non sequitur. Oftentimes these are used for comedic purposes. The train is traveling at 60 miles per hour, therefore the train is blue. You see that that doesn't logically follow. The statement, men and women are both created equally in God's image, therefore men and women do the same things, is a non sequitur. So what God says here to the woman highlights the discontent that she will feel in her role in relation to her husband. God created the man, the head of his wife. Man is charged with, again, leading, protecting, providing for his wife and family. But this is the very thing that the woman will struggle to accept. She will attempt to control her husband. She will seek to be independent of him. She will try and circumvent his God-given authority in her life. Again, our society applauds this very thing in women. Women who take control of their lives are lauded. Barriers are broken down. A high degree of independence is something that is important. The lack of need for outside leadership, protection, or provision is again something that we applaud. And while these things aren't always bad, some of this is just rooted in a misunderstanding of God's intent for men and women in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And a misunderstanding of what God is saying here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. Not only a misunderstanding, but sometimes just a complete ignoring of it. All of this is designed, though, to show us, especially in chapters 1 and 2, the, the beauty of God's design and interplay between man and women as perfect fit for one another. That's the highlight of Genesis chapter 2, working together, not in unison, but in harmony to bring something about. The interplay is exactly what God designed. But the order is disrupted and the result is a life with a sinful heart that draws women to seek to break free of their God-established role. For many of us, especially if you're relatively young, this talk makes us squirm. It makes me squirm just, talk, just saying it right now. We've been inculcated with and programmed to believe that thinking in the terms of roles and limits and boundaries is evil. But the text is clear. The desire that the woman has to control her husband, to, to be completely independent in her life, to submit to no barrier or boundary, these ideas are not commendable, but are today's expression of Eve's sin transmitted to us. So here's what I want to clarify to prevent wrong-headed thinking about this text. Let me say a few things. Here's what I'm not saying. Not saying that women shouldn't work outside of the home or have positions of authority in the workplace or be CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. That's not what this text is saying. And I'm not saying that the woman shouldn't be educated or seek to make an intellectual impact on the world or to write books or to be or vocal participants in their field of work. I'm not saying that women shouldn't refine their gifts and pursue their passions. That's not what I'm saying. Men for a long time, for actually the majority of human history, have used texts like this, texts like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and texts like Ephesians chapter 5 to 
to justify their abuse of their wives and women in our society. So I'm not saying any of these these things, but what I am saying is that the application of this text is important. If any of those things cause you to lose sight of your role as helper to your husband or put away and pull you away from raising children, you need to rethink them. There's no, there's no talk of balance here. There's no talk of balance here. You have a role that you're created for and then everything else. Now, I can't go any further without addressing men. At the end of chapter 2, we have the one flesh statement in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so any disruption in the wife's role also means dramatic implications for their husbands. Men, our wives have God-honoring dreams and ambitions and aspirations and goals. Men, make seeing your wife achieve those goals and do those things more important than your truck or your boat or getting the garage heated. Don't just create financial pathways for those things, but provide emotional and spiritual support that your wife needs to make those things a reality. Here's how I'm going to say it, and this is going to be very direct. Men, lead your wife out of sin. When I say lead your wife out of sin, I mean make your wife's goals your goals. Encourage her in those goals. Enlarge in her world. Make it something that, that can, or can become a reality for her. Talk through those goals with her. Encourage her in those things. Acknowledge the challenges that she may face or that may prevent her from honoring God with her gifts and talents. Give her opportunities to thrive as a wife and mother and don't make her choose between her God-appointed role and what she's passionate about. If you're threatened by your wife's ambitions or threatened by your wife's goals, it's probably because you're selfish and weak. The reason women are biting on the cultural message of independence and self-sufficiency may be because men in their lives are selfish and weak. I was text messaging a friend. We were talking about raising daughters I have three of them. He has three of them. He said, my daughters will know how to field dress a deer and change a tire. And I would add to that, and I am praying for a husband for my daughters who won't be threatened that my daughters are strong and confident. When I go into the grave, I fully expect that my wife will have a rich and impactful teaching career at a post-secondary level, will have more PhDs than I will, And will never be once, I hope, God help me, never once be asked to compromise her role as a wife and a mother. Weak men let their wives stew in their desire to control their husbands while they whine to their friends at the water cooler about how hard their marriage is. 
Women, this, this conversation that I'm having with men does not mean that you're a victim. Genesis 3.16 makes this clear. Sometimes the desire that is contrary to your husband's or seeks to control your husband, those need to be checked. And sometimes you need to say to your husband, I really think that we should do this or that, but I trust your discretion. Now, husbands, you have to be worthy of that trust. You have to live a life of proximity, caring deeply for the emotional and spiritual health and well-being of your wife in order to earn that trust. Wives, sometimes your husband won't be right. Often he won't be right. And rather than say, I told you so, you need to say, I love you. Your desire to exert control over your husband won't go away in this life. And that manifests itself in many different ways. But in order to honor God and the role he designed for you, you need to, you need to fight it. So to recap, God addresses two things in the, in the life of Eve. Childbearing, marriage, the effects that sin has on these two things carries over into our lives. And as a result of the sin, childbearing for a woman was, pain in childbearing was multiplied. And women struggle against this desire to circumvent the God-established order in their marriage to control their marital relationships. So I want to go to 30,000 feet here and talk very quickly about what we should take away from this, this passage. If I were to sum it up, I would say this. The first thing is this. We need to be, run to Jesus to be free from sin and the after effects of the sin that we see committed here in Genesis chapter 3. This is where we need to look at Genesis 3.15 and not lose sight of that as our anchor for Genesis 3.16-19. The pull of sin on Eve's heart could not be conquered by just doing better. Something more would be needed. This is what God is communicating. Something more would be needed. Something more would have to happen. And the answer to the question is, but what? And the offspring of the woman would need to come and crush the serpent's head. Apart from Jesus, we are enslaved to sin. Scripture is clear about this. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are enslaved to sin. The desire that God talks about in the second half of verse 16, that desire will be present and enslave you. But Jesus came to free you. When you are joined with Christ, you are given the Spirit of Christ who enables you to fight and be free of sin. You can now see clearly and picture clearly your God-designed role, both men and women, and live in line with it. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross and why he provides his spirit to us. And this only comes through Jesus Christ who bore the ultimate penalty of sin, which is death on your behalf. Women, maybe you've made the assessment and you've been exhibiting a desire contrary to your husband. Maybe you've sought to control him or prove your independence or simply to have it your way or get what you want. Jesus' death and resurrection frees you from that desire and that control and gives you the ability to live as God designed. 
Men, maybe you've been threatened by your wife's ambitions and goals or by her strength and confidence and have, have put her in a position that is unhelpful and unhealthy. Maybe you've been passive. Maybe you have not thought clearly about how you can lead and provide and protect your wife outside of the mere financial or physical elements. You are not fulfilling your role as a husband if those are the only things that you ever think about. Jesus' death and resurrection frees you from the abdication of your role as a husband and a leader and a protector and a provider. You can now do those things through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You can do these things now through the power that resides in you that God designed for you, regardless of your circumstances. The second thing I would say to take away from this text is that we need to actively reduce the effects of sin around us in the world. This is part of our calling as a church in the community. These effects here in verse 16, and what we'll explore next week in verses 17 through 19, are devastating on homes and communities workplaces, and even the local church. We need, as those who have been freed in Christ, to live into His design, God's design for us, we need to seek to actively reduce the effects of sin on our world. Men who are not abdicating their roles. Women who love and honor their husbands. This dynamic interplay, not operating out of deficiencies, but operating out of the overflow of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Picturing a pre-fall, garden-like relationship as men and women in our marriages. What came about as a result of Adam and Eve's sin is terrible, but those of us who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit again and are free to choose something other than sin. And so, therefore, we seek to reduce the effects of sin in our own life by working towards Christian maturity, but then also looking at the world around us and saying the only way for this culture, this community, this workplace, our family, this church to be transformed is through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. We don't leave it here. We take it out. It's a heinous thing to spurn God's design for man and woman. Christian marriages should portray the gospel. Again, overflowing, just dripping with gospel. Not operating out of this deficiency, saying, i got to do this. But saying, how Wonderful is it that I am able to picture God's design for man and woman. When I was dead in my trespasses and sins, God made me alive together with Christ in order to demonstrate to the world that God's way is better than mine. Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Self-sacrificial. Ephesians 5.33, let each one of you, husbands, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
God's design for man and woman in the garden puts the gospel front and center on display in our lives. Self-sacrificial love, working together harmoniously, building one another up, freely forgiving one another, honoring, loving, respecting, nourishing, cherishing. This is not operating out of deficiency. This is operating over or out of the overflow of God's love shown to us. This is not us saying, we got to do this because, look at the culture around us, they got it right and we got to do something different. This is us saying, we actively live this way because God has made a way for us in Christ Jesus. It is also a heinous thing to circumvent God's created order in order to ignore what he commands in it. Again, passages like these and concepts like these have been used to justify abuse in communities, in churches, in marriages. It's a heinous thing to circumvent God's created order and ignore his commands in it. These things have been used to manipulate. This is not manipulation. It's God's kindness demonstrated to us at the cross in a, in a desire to reflect that in our marriage. And it is a heinous thing to promote self and self-interest and to circumvent God's created order through that. Christians have the unique ability to fight against the things that disrupt God's created order and to properly picture God's design for man and woman. The things that I've described here this morning may not be that unfamiliar to many of you in here, whether in childbearing or marriage, women. But to see the beauty of the promise, we must first feel the weight of the pain I hope that you listened when Blaze read this morning from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. If you missed it, go back and read that this afternoon. God was not going to allow for this pain and the death that you have felt in your life and have experienced to win the day. And the covenant enacted in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3 will be the future hope that strengthens God's people until Jesus would Put to death, death with his heel. And all the pain in the pregnancy and childbirth and infertility and miscarriage and in parenting, all of this pain would be wiped away. It would lose its potency. And it would allow for Paul to write in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for a weight for us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Through the pain that we now experience, we are being prepared for the full realization of God's promise to bring an end to an end or to the end to death that came as a result of our sin and the sin of our first parents. Through the pain that we experience now, we are being prepared for the full realization of God's promise to bring an end to the death that came as a result of our sin and the sin of our first parents. So two things, we are free from sin in Jesus Christ, and then we seek to reduce the effects of sin on the world around us as those who have been freed from that sin. I'll leave you with this. This is Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 